This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part three of five of Professor Hanko's series, God's Everlasting Covenant of Grace. I want to come back tonight before we proceed on with the things we have been discussing with this matter of Christ as the head of the covenant. I want to demonstrate by some examples uh, uh, from the scriptures and by some of the Old Testament types what a significant and important concept that was and is that Christ is the head of the covenant. I consider that a significant and important concept because of the fact that this is denied by those who are our chief opponents in the matter of the doctrine of the covenant. I refer to the American and Canadian Reformed churches, better known as the Liberated. In the context of their doctrine of the covenant, they refuse to acknowledge that Christ is the head of the covenant. In doing so, they lose an important and beautiful aspect of the truth of the covenant, and it's that that I want to demonstrate for you briefly tonight. I want to begin with one type in the old dispensation And the type with which I want to begin is the type of the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon and later of Zerubbabel. You will recognize the fact immediately that the pattern of the tabernacle and the temple were identical and that the general pattern of both the tabernacle and the temple was similar to the construction of the original Garden of Eden with paradise in the center of it. If we may follow momentarily the the description in Genesis, we are told that God created the land of Eden and to the east of Eden placed a garden which was called paradise. And in the center of the garden placed the tree of life. that was originally created by God that way for a specific and definite purpose. And it was created that way by God in order to be an original pattern for the construction of the tabernacle and the temple created in this same fashion. There was the outer court of the temple first of all. Within the outer court of the temple, there was the inner sanctuary divided into two parts, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. They were separated from each other by a thick veil beyond which no one might ever go upon pain of death except the high priest once a year with the blood of atonement in his hand, which he would pour 
on the cover of the mercy seat. Now, the point of all of this was in the original paradise and in the tabernacle and in the temple that God dwelt in covenant fellowship with his people. That was the heart of it. That's why already in paradise, when God created Adam, God created Adam as his covenant friend. So that Adam was in the midst of the paradise of God, God's friend servant, friend of God, living in covenant fellowship with God at the foot of the tree of life, servant of God as image bearer to rule in God's name in the midst of God's creation. In the tabernacle and in the temple, the most holy place was, of course, the place where God himself dwelt. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the, holy, the most holy place was filled with the Shekinah, the cloud of God's glory, the same cloud that led Israel through the wilderness all the way from Egypt to Canaan. The same cloud, indeed, that surrounded Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration and bore him to heaven at the time of his ascension. It was the symbol of God's presence. The nation of Israel, however, was limited to the outer court. And so the idea was that God and his people dwelt together in covenant fellowship, but nevertheless, the idea was under one roof, in one house, so to speak. Just as husband and wife, when they enjoy the covenant of marriage, live not in separate houses, she in Florida and he in Michigan, but they live in the same house. So it was with God and his people. The trouble was that in the old dispensation, although God and his people lived rather uh, close under one roof, they nevertheless had to remain, by virtue of it being the Old Testament, a certain distance from each other. It was almost like a husband and wife just married who move into their new home, but the husband is consigned to the east side of the house and the wife consigned to the west side of the house, and in between are impenetrable barriers or locked doors so that although you can say they both live together in one house, nevertheless, they cannot live very close to each other. It was something like that. The reason was that between the people of Israel and God, who dwelt in the most holy place, was the veil beyond which no one might go, the altar of incense, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the entire Aaronitic priesthood, and above all, the altar of burnt offering. In other words, Israel could not come close to God because the blood of atonement had not been shed. Sin had not been paid for. 
and therefore only the visible symbol of atonement in the offerings that were made on the burnt offering indicated that better things were yet to come. So while it was a reality that God dwelt in covenant fellowship with his people in the old dispensation, nevertheless, it was, if I may put it that way, a rather poor business. It's probably for that reason that David, for example, in Psalm 84, expresses a certain jealousy of the sparrows who are able to dwell closer to God than he is. He's limited to this part of the tabernacle. The sparrows can build their nests right under the eaves where God himself dwells. Or the swallows, I think, is the bird to which he refers. Yea, the swallows have found a nest, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts. Now, what is significant and what is important as far as our discussion of this is concerned is the fact that Christ himself is the fulfillment of this. And that's why I had Wayne read John 2. He read the whole chapter as I asked him to do, partly because there are in both sections of chapter 2 of John's Gospel uh, amazing references to the covenant, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the changing of wine, of water into wine, is said by John to be the beginning of miracles. And John does not mean by that. This is the first miracle which Jesus performed, and there were many more miracles that Jesus would subsequently perform. But John means by that, this is a miracle which is a principal miracle, and all the miracles that are to follow are in some way or another going to demonstrate the truth of this one miracle, because the marriage at Cana of Galilee was a picture of the marriage of Christ and his church. And wine is a symbol of the joy and gladness and prosperity that belongs to God's covenant people. By the way, it might interest you to know in passing that when my wife and I were married now some 53 years ago at our reception, Reverend Herman Huxma spoke on that text. And we were both enthralled by his exposition of that particular miracle. As was his custom, he, he spoke rather long, and it got to be midnight, and the janitor was getting disgusted, and so he flicked on and off the lights. That didn't uh, particularly sit well with Reverend Hooksema, but it added a little color to our wedding for all that. However that may be, I'm not particularly interested in that miracle tonight, as important as it is, but I am interested in that event of Jesus cleansing the temple. I can't go into that in detail, but there is a marvelous, marvelous gospel in that passage. 
I find that particularly in the explanation of Jesus' actions to the unbelieving Pharisees. You recall how after the event was over and they had recovered a bit and, and realized what had happened, that Jesus, by the mere voice of his authority, had driven them all out of the temple, that they came to him and said, who gave you the authority to do this? The authority to do this. That was the question. We are the ones who have authority here in the temple. We are the ones who rule here in Jerusalem. We are, do, are the ones that see to it that the law is enforced. We'll determine how things are to take place here in the temple. Who do you think you are that you can come and simply overthrow everything which we are doing? The answer which Jesus gave to them was surprising and not at all what they had anticipated. His answer was, and this was at the very beginning of his ministry, his answer was, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. That was his answer. That's my authority to cleanse the temple. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant in the first place that the original temple of Solomon and the temple of Zerubbabel and even the temple of Herod, if you will, were really nothing else but pictures of him. And because they were pictures of him, he had a right to determine what happened to and how his own picture was used. He had that right. I have that right too. If I give a, a picture of myself to my wife, I have the right to prevent her from throwing it in the ash can, I think. But the picture of the temple was unique and powerfully a picture of him because of the fact that it was a picture of the Son of God, as we noticed last time, in our flesh. Destroy this body, Jesus said. And he said that, meaning, of course, so much is this picture of the temple tied to me personally that when you wicked Jews destroy my body, as you're going to do down the line just a few years, you're going to destroy this temple too because you cannot destroy me without destroying my temple the picture of me that God gave to the church in the old dispensation. And so it was, you recall, how when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom so that the holy place and the most holy place existed no longer. The whole temple was destroyed, and finally in 70 AD, its destruction was completed. But when Jesus said, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, that's the authority whereby I am here in charge of my picture and of my own suffering and death and of my resurrection from the dead. In other words, this is my authority. You destroy the temple of my body, 
and I will build by my power the true temple of God. That was the meaning. I know that incident of Jesus cleansing the temple is sometimes preached on by ministers to prove that ladies' aides ought not to hold sales in churches, but that really has nothing to do with it. And the whole incident is so entirely different from anything so prosaic that it's really a shame that it even is ever used for that purpose. The whole beautiful picture of Christ as the true temple of God is tied up in this. Now, how is Christ the temple of God? He is the temple of God, as we talked about last week, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to glory, where he is given a place of preeminence and exaltation. There is a passage in Colossians 2, I refer to verse 19, I think. No, not verse uh, 19, verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9. That reads like this. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's a startling expression. And it's a startling expression in Colossians 2 verse 9 because in the first place it speaks of the fact that in Christ who was like us in all things except for our sin dwells the fullness of the Godhead. That is the fullness, the totality of the divine nature with all of its attributes, all of its perfections, all of its glory, all of its blessedness, as it is in God himself, the one true and living God. In Christ this dwells. Now that's an amazing thing. That Godhead dwells in Christ now, in perfection, in glory... how shall I put it, in a visible way while at the same time when he was on earth that was also true, but it was hidden. In Christ's state of humiliation, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt also in Christ bodily. John himself says in John 1, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John says, John 1, 14 and 15. Nevertheless, because of his human nature that was in the state of humiliation, you couldn't see it. The Godhead was hidden. And the only thing you could see of the Godhead was that from time to time, in startling and amazing ways, it flashed through the human nature, as, for example, in the miracles which Christ did, and in the sermons which he preached, 
when the people heard him, for he spake as one having authority and not as the scribes. But otherwise he looked just like a man. And therefore it is through his death and resurrection and ascension and exaltation that Christ in his glorified human nature now is visibly the one in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus begins his marvelous discourse in John 14, 15, and 16 on the eve of his death by answering a question of Thomas. Thomas asked the Lord, Show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, don't you understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's the same thing. Only now, of course, God, the great, infinite, invisible one, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, becomes visible in the body of Jesus Christ. I wonder frequently how that will be. We will see Christ when we go to heaven. We will see him face to face. But don't forget that when we see Christ, and we will be able to see him because he has a human nature just as we do. When we see Christ, we will see God. The exalted human nature of Christ is like a picture window through which when you look, you see God himself in all of his infinite perfections and in all his glory revealed in a form that we can see in the body of Jesus Christ. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But now, think of that for a moment. Not only does God dwell bodily in Christ in his state of exaltation, but the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Now ye are the body of Christ. And members in particular. Now you must not interpret that to mean that in some metaphorical sense of the word there is a certain similarity between a human body and the relation between Christ and the church. It's not a metaphorical statement. It's not a comparison. It is a reality. I must confess, of course, that I have no idea how that will be. But the scriptures are clear enough. We are the body of Christ. Paul in Ephesians 5, when he's talking about the mystery of marriage, says in so many words, 
We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. You can't make it any more powerful than that. The church is. And in that beautiful Lord's Day, in the Heidelberg Catechism that discusses the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the Heidelberg Catechism insists on the truth that although we do not believe in Roman Catholic transubstantiation, we nevertheless do firmly believe that we eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. But we do that not physically, but spiritually. So the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what does it mean then to eat the body and drink the shed blood of Christ? And it answers that question by saying it means this, among other things, that we are, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, more and more united to his blessed body. That's what it means. Of course, you eat bread and drink wine and it becomes part of your body. You eat the body of Christ by faith and drink the blood of Christ by faith, which in the Belgic Confession is explained as being the mouth, faith, the mouth of the soul. We are united to Christ's body. Now put that in this context. Not any longer God over on this end of the house and the people way over here and all of this paraphernalia in between and the whole Aaronitic priesthood. The blood of atonement has been shed, don't you see? And so now God and his people come so close together that they are one in the body of Christ. If God dwells, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily, and we are the body of Christ, then the fullness of the Godhead dwells in us. When we are united to Christ, God can't get any closer to us than that. That's covenant fellowship in Jesus Christ. You know, it's a, it's a striking thing. The Jews, although this took place at the beginning of the Lord's ministry, the Jews never forgot it. They knew, they knew that Jesus was not referring to Herod's temple. They mocked at the time, oh, what are you talking about? Don't you know that this temple was 40 and two years in building and it's still not completed and you're going to build it in three days? You don't know what you're talking about. But they knew that there was a meaning there that they could not quite understand and it frightened the wits out of them. And the result of it was that three and a half years later when they were looking for a ground on the basis of which to condemn Christ before the Sanhedrin, they finally brought up that whole matter of what he had said when he cleansed the temple. Oh, he once said that he was going to destroy this temple, which was a lie, of course. He had never said that. He said, you destroy this temple. But they didn't care about that. He said he would destroy this temple. 
They remembered. And then when he hung on the cross and they were jeering at him and mocking him, what was one of the chief jeers? Temple destroyer, come down from the cross and we'll believe on you. That's what they said. They couldn't get it out of their heads. And so it is. And that's why Paul in Ephesians, yes, in Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22, speaks of the church as a temple. You know the passage well. Ye are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple of the Lord. God dwells in us. We are, the, as the body of Christ, the temple of the Lord, in whom God dwells. And because he dwells in us, we live in covenant fellowship with him. That's what it means. You deny all that. People of God, don't you see? You, may, you take Christ out of the covenant and you deny all that. All that beautiful, glorious revelation of the scriptures, not only, but all of the truth of that reality. Christ is the head of the covenant. Then we're going to... Um, move on to a different topic and I'm going to begin tonight the discussion of the Protestant Reformed view of the covenant which is biblical and confessional as over against erroneous views of the covenant. And I consider this extremely important to compare our view of the covenant with other erroneous views. I mentioned a couple of others in the outline for the purposes of uh, covering the necessary material. We're going to have to skip them. I mentioned, for example, the concept of the covenant of works. If any of you are interested in a thorough biblical critique of the covenant of works, I advise you to re uh, read Herman Huxema's uh, analysis of the traditional doctrine of the covenant of works in his Reformed Dogmatics. There is also the view of Meredith Klein. He first proposed his view a number of years ago in a book he wrote, the title of which was By Oath Consigned. I read it at that time, must be 20, 25 years ago, and was aghast at what he taught. Meredith Klein is a professor, I think, maybe by now retired, originally in Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Massachusetts, a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. 
He compared the covenant with ancient Hittite treaties. And said that Israel patterned its own conception of the life of the covenant with God after the pattern of Hittite treaties. I had thought that that view of Meredith Klein would go the way of many false views and sink gradually into oblivion. But that was not to be. A recent book written by Michael Horton, who is a rather well-known conservative radio speaker and author who publishes or is editor of a rather prestigious and glossy and high-class magazine, Reformation Today, I think is the name of it, has resurrected the old view of Meredith Klein. If I'm not mistaken, Michael Horton is a minister in the United Reformed Church, formerly Christian Reformed. And it may be that he teaches in Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, California. It was quite a surprise to me to read in Michael Horton's book that he was resurrecting this old, strange, unbiblical, really higher critical view of the covenant of Meredith Klein. But strange things happen in today's church world. I'm not going to go into that either. It would be too distracting, I think. I do want to talk about the liberated view of the covenant. And I want to talk about the liberated view of the covenant and what they mean by the covenant and their conception of the covenant as compared with ours because that poses the greatest threat to our covenant view. It was the view that almost won the day in 1953. Looking back on those years in 1953, I personally am convinced that it was a special favor of God who intervened at a moment when almost all seemed lost to rescue the Protestant Reformed churches from what was seemed to be almost certain defeat. And the enemy was the liberated covenant view. I consider the liberated covenant view to be the greatest threat because in Reformed and Presbyterian churches, it is almost universally adopted in some form or another. It is the view of the Netherlands Reformed Church. It is the view of the Free Reformed Church. I wouldn't say it's the view of the Christian Reformed Church because I don't think they even have a covenant view any longer. And certainly the Reformed Church of America has no covenant view. 
It's the view of the Reformed Church in the U.S., the so-called German Reformed Church. It's the view of the seminary in Hamilton. It's the view of the seminary in Dyer, Indiana, Mars Seminary, formerly in Orange City, Iowa. In fact, when that seminary was dedicated a number of years ago, the speaker at the dedication said, in so many words, everyone must understand that this seminary is based upon the covenant view of Dr. Klaus Skilder, which is the liberated covenant view. So it's widespread. And insofar as even the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has a view of the covenant, it's the view held by the liberated churches. And I mean not only the liberated churches in Canada and America, but I mean the liberated churches in the Netherlands, the liberated churches in Australia, the liberated churches in South Africa, and wherever New Zealand and wherever that denomination has sister churches. They all hold to the covenant view of Dr. Klaus Skilder. And that view of Dr. Klaus Skilder was originally proposed and adopted or proposed and developed by Professor, Professor William Hines, professor of practical theology in Calvin Theological Seminary in the late 19-teens and early 1920s, and professor of Reformed Doctrine in Calvin College. It's a very peculiar covenant view and let me say at the very outset, it's very unbiblical, very unconfessional, and very Arminian. And maybe, just maybe, that's its appeal. The Protestant Reformed view of the covenant is openly scorned and derided and brushed aside as hardly worthy of mention. And I don't hesitate to say that one of the problems which our churches are facing at present in Singapore is that many of the leaders in the Singapore churches want the covenant view of the Free Reformed Church of Australia liberated. That was true already when I was there in, what was it, 1996 or 94 with Professor Dykstra. 
we had a public meeting, which was called because I was openly defending our covenant view, and there were many who disagreed. Covenant, the meeting was held in covenant, and many, many were present, and the covenant conception of the liberated was openly defended from the floor, and the Protestant reformed view was challenged. And that continues to the present. So we're not talking about an incidental matter, matter that lies on the periphery, on the outer edge of Protestant Reformed Church life. We're talking about something that vitally concerns us. When Dr. Skilder came to this country in 1947, I think, 48, he stayed at our house. I remember him well. My father and he had long discussions about the covenant. And the more perturbed they became, the more the smoke filled the room until you could hardly see them any longer. But they didn't agree. And in fact, Dr. Skilder said to my father once, and I have to say it in Dutch because I don't quite know what the translation is. When I listen to your covenant view, ik heb de snur aan. I guess that means your, your covenant view nauseates me. Those were rather tense times. Anyway, first of all, you will understand what we said at the very beginning of the course, that the liberated view of the covenant arises from the viewpoint of the covenant as being a pact or agreement. while the Protestant reform view teaches that the covenant is a bond of friendship. When the liberated say, of course, that the essence of the covenant is that it is a pact or an agreement, what they mean by that is this, that the covenant has as its fundamental character, promise and demand. While the Protestant Reformed view over against that is this, that the content of the promise is the covenant. 
The covenant is nothing else but a promise. That's all it is. God's promise. And that promise is, I will be your God and the God of your seed. That's the promise. That is the covenant itself. That's the heart of the covenant. Just as in any kind of an agreement or a pact, when two people come together and agree on something, they make promises to each other and demands of each other. So God makes the promise to his people and demands of them obedience and faithfulness. That's the idea. And so the liberated say, because the essence of the covenant is promise and demand, the covenant is a means to an end. While the Protestant Reformed say the covenant is an end in itself. Now let me illustrate those things. So that you're clear on what I mean by that. The liberated say because God's covenant consists of a promise and demand... God promises, I will be your God and the God of your seed, provided you receive the promises of the covenant by faith, obey me and keep those promises. So, the promise, because it's tied to demand, is conditional. If you fulfill the conditions of the covenant, then you will be saved. As long as you live in the world, you're confronted with the promise, I will be your God and the God of your seed, provided you fulfill the conditions of obedience and faithfulness and accept the provisions of the covenant by faith. Then when, when heaven comes, the covenant will be done with, the treaty is finished, the agreement is accomplished, and salvation is the end. Protestant Reformed view is, no, salvation is itself the covenant. What is the essence of the covenant? That God establishes a bond of friendship and fellowship with his people, that is eternal. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you and with your seed. And I will be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And you shall be my people. That is itself salvation. And what could be more glorious and more blessed than that? That through Christ we dwell in covenant fellowship with God as his everlasting friends. And so, against the liberated view, the Protestant Reform say the covenant is unconditional. 
And we're going to come back to some of those things. Furthermore, and this is a fundamental point of the liberated position, the promise and the demand, which is the essence of the covenant, or the covenant itself, is made with all baptized. Whether they are baptized out of heathendom or whether they are baptized as children of believers, God makes to everyone the promise and demands of everyone faith and obedience. Every baptized child, every person, every family brought into the line of the covenant through mission work. Baptism incorporates one into the covenant, makes such a one the heir of the promise. In a very real sense of the word. Now this is a crucially important point. And it's a crucially important point because this is a universalism in the covenant. The Protestant reforms say the covenant is made with the elect only. Now because the elect only is there, the liberated say is a corollary of this, no election. No election. There is no operation of election in the covenant. In fact, the liberated mock our view as being election theology. Those PRs, all they ever talk about is election. Well, I hope they're true. I hope they're right. I hope we do. If indeed that is correct, then I hope and pray it is, then the charge is true. I personally take great pride in that, that we are always talking about election. And the fact that the liberated scorn that means nothing to me at all. We better talk about election because the Bible does and our reformed creeds do. The liberated flatly refuse to apply the doctrine of election to the covenant. They say, in so many words, election has nothing to do with the covenant. Election is not a controlling force in the covenant. Election is not determinative of who are in the covenant and who are not. Election belongs to the hidden things. And you pry carelessly into the hidden things of God if you talk about election. 
which is sheer nonsense, of course. They don't know what they're talking about. It's the revealed things, the liberated say, that are of concern to us. And the revealed things are that all those baptized belong to the covenant. No election. Now, because there is no election, they deny that Christ is the head of the covenant. Of course, have to. Because how can you say Christ without saying election? And how can you say election without saying Christ? We noticed that last week. So they deny that Christ is the head of the covenant. While we, of course, maintain that emphatically, as I've been at great pains to explain. You put those two together, you put all those ideas of the liberated together, and what have you got? You have, I tell you, sheer Arminianism at its worst. That's what you have. And there isn't a way in the world you can avoid that. Let me illustrate that. I should add one more point here yet, because that makes it worse yet. Not only do the liberated teach all of these things, that all who are baptized are in the covenant, but all baptized... receive covenantal grace. That was Bill Hines' view. And of course the Protestant reform denied. That's a common grace of the covenant. That is, they all receive, everyone baptized receives grace which enables him either to accept the provisions of the covenant or to reject them. That's the kind of grace he receives. Well, that's, that's in itself, sheer Arminianism. Now, when Skilder came into contact with our churches and discussed with various ministers in our churches who were sound at any rate, they persuaded him that that idea of covenantal grace was wrong. And Skilder later publicly repudiated it. A man, a theologian from the Canadian Reformed Churches by the name of Yella Faber, wrote a book on secession ministers. Ministers from the secession of 1834 on, whom he claims taught the, the liberated view of the covenant. He says in that book that under the influence of the Protestant Reformed Church, churches, Skilder repudiated general covenantal grace. Then he adds this significant remark. It is probably the only mistake Skilder ever made. So in other words, Yalafaber, who is now retired professor from Hamilton, believes also in general covenantal grace. Now, what does all this mean? 
All this means simply this, that every child that is, well, let me use, let me use an illustration. That's the easiest way to make it clear. And this is an illustration that was not concocted in my own head, but is taken out of liberated writings, taken out of a, a book by the name of Appel, Appeal, which was written at the time of the secession in the Netherlands in 1944 when the Synod of Snake Utrecht deposed Skilder. The illustration is used, and I'm sure most of you have heard it, that at the time of baptism, because all who are baptized are included in the covenant, God gives to each baptized person a check filled out. And on that check reads, date, the date of the baptism, pay to the order of the name of the one being baptized, the sum of salvation signed by God. That's what every child receives. He's got that in his hands. He has a check from God that guarantees salvation. The trouble is he can do a number of things with that check. Number one, he can take that check and he can frame it and put it on the wall and say every, to everyone who comes into his house to visit with him and his wife, look at the beautiful check we have, signed by God. But of course the check doesn't do him any good. And so he is the man who is guilty of dead orthodoxy, who boasts about being a part of the church, about being baptized, but never fulfills the conditions of the covenant. There are others who take that check and they rip it up and they throw the pieces in the wastebasket and say, I don't want anything to do with the whole business. They are, say the liberated, covenant breakers. And there are, in the third place, those who make use of the check by endorsing it and cashing it in the bank of heaven. They are the ones who fulfill the conditions of the covenant and receive the promise because the demand is connected to it, endorse the check, cash it. Now everyone has this check, every single one. Every single baptized person has this check. God says to that person, I promise you salvation if you cash the check. Conditional. Everyone. Everyone. Now, I hope that you can spot immediately that this is exactly what DeWolf was preaching from the pulpit of First Church, except on the broader scale of the preaching of the gospel. DeWolf wasn't talking about baptism, he was talking about preaching. He was talking about, uh, as a matter of fact, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. My wife and I heard the sermon and especially the last part where the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to his brothers. If he would rise from the dead, then they will believe. And Abraham's answer is, no, they won't. Let them hear Moses and the prophets and so on. You know how it goes. That's what he was preaching. On. And then he made this statement. God promises every one of you, and he meant that, every single one in the audience, Salvation, if you believe. So everyone in the audience has the promise. 
objectively, through the preaching, which promise becomes his, in fact, if he fulfills the condition. Heinz and Skilder were applying it to baptism. And mind you, every baptized child receives grace, too, so that he has the spiritual power to cash the check. And so that if he does not cash the check and throws it away, it's because he resists what God wants him to do. It's the well-meant offer of the gospel applied to the covenant and the promise of the covenant. Now all of this is so clearly Arminian that it's impossible for me to deny it. Now, the liberated, as you know, try to squirm out of the charge of being Arminian with this conception of the covenant by saying, yes, but God fulfills the conditions. And that's supposed to take care of it, you see. God promises to every one of you salvation if you will accept the provisions of the covenant. But God fulfills the conditions. That's nothing but a clever, devilish dodge that will not work. Let me use an illustration again to demonstrate that. Supposing that I am facing an audience of 50 men I'm up there, the men are down here. None of the 50 has any legs. And I say to those 50 men without legs, I'll give $10,000 to every one of you who will get out of your pew and walk up here and stand on the platform with me. I mean that, men, and I start waving $10,000 bills in front of them. It's all here. I want you all to have it. Think what you can do with $10,000. You can each get a set of the latest in prosthetics. And besides that, you will have money to spend for yourself. I would want nothing so much as that you come up here and get your $10,000. Now, apart from the fact that I'm making a fool of them, because I know and they know and everybody who is within hearing knows that they can't move an inch, I nevertheless am dead in earnest in my promise and my demand. My promise is $10,000. My demand is walk up here. But no, none of them can walk. So they say we can't fulfill the condition. So I say to them, well, okay. So I come down, and out of the hundred legless men that are sitting there, I carry 20 to the platform and summon 20 men from somewhere with legs to hold them up so they can stand on the stumps that they have left so that I fulfill the condition for them. Now you tell me, is my 
conditional demand, a true condition, that they have to get out of their pew and walk up there in order to receive the $10,000. And then I go down and carry about 20 of them up there and leave the other 30 sit. The whole business is ridiculous. And the whole idea of a, con- of a condition is smashed. Nobody is going to say, least of all the men that are still in the pews, well, fine condition that is, you fulfill it for 20 of them and let 30 of us sit here. And the 20 who are up there are not going to say, well, we fulfill the condition. No, we didn't fulfill any conditions. We were carried up here. Nothing to do with conditions. That whole ploy, DeWolf tried the same thing in 1953. It's absurd. That whole ploy, God fulfills the conditions, simply is a devilish and crooked way to deceive the unwary and to pass off something blatantly Arminian as if it is, after all, reformed. And then on top of it all, you have Heinz's view of covenantal grace. Everyone has the grace to do it. That's, after all, Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism teaches the same thing. Every man receives prevenient grace by means of which grace his will is freed, so that he can choose for or against the gospel, either accept or reject Christ, and on the basis of what he does, he will be saved or damned. That's Heinz covenant theology. That's the covenant theology which is so popular today. Now I submit to you, people of God, that that's no way to play games with the truth. But I also submit to you that the reason why this wretched, openly Arminian view is so widely received is simply because of the fact that the Protestant Reformed view of the covenant gives all glory to God and pushes man down with his face in the mud, leaves nothing for him. And man's sinful pride can't bear that. You and I can't either. It's too crushing of our pride, except that God smashes the hard rock of our pride and humbles us before his face. Now, this isn't the worst of it. Well, I don't know if it is or not. But the simple fact of the matter is that this view of the liberated has been developed in the last 10 or 15 years especially into the doctrine of justification by faith and works the so-called federal vision that was developed by Norman Shepard. Norman Shepard himself 
late professor of theology in Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, now retired minister in the Christian Reformed Church living in Zeeland, Michigan, has openly said that his doctrine of justification by faith and works is a doctrine which he developed on the basis of the covenantal conditional theology of Klaus Skilder. And his argument is this and makes all kinds of sense. If the covenant is conditional, all salvation is conditional. And if all salvation is conditional, the fundamental blessing of salvation, justification by faith, is conditional and therefore is on the basis of faith and works. That's a repudiation of the entire Reformation. That's a return to Rome. In fact, there is a book out, you can read it, by a man by the name of Han, former Presbyterian, who went back to Rome and wrote a book, Rome's Sweet Home. And in that book he says that the one reason he returned to Rome is because he was convinced by Norman Shepherd of the truth of justification by faith and works. And that's, after all, what Rome teaches. And that's what Luther fought against, tooth and nail, and established the truth of the Reformation. Men like Steve Schlissel openly mock Luther when it is pointed out to them that our confessions teach justification by faith alone without works, they simply say the confessions are wrong. Sneeringly in a, in a pride that is almost unbearable, Schlissel says, poor Marty got things mixed up, referring to Martin Luther. When Martin Luther is a theologian, towers so high above Steve Slissel that Steve Slissel can't even see over his big toe. It infuriates a person. And yet that whole view of the federal vision has infiltrated the churches. The URC has proponents of the federal vision in it. In fact, one of their ministers, who has now left the denomination, I understand, openly taught not only that all salvation is conditional, but that the promise of the covenant was so really everyone's possession who was baptized that every baptized child was an elect and that every baptized child was sanctified, that every baptized child received faith, that every baptized child was justified, but he had to fulfill the condition or he would lose it all. He'd lose his election, lose his sanctification. He taught that in the United Reformed Church. And the Orthodox Christian Reformed Church is up to its eyeballs in the same problem simply because they have one of their most influential ministers 
teaching the doctrines of a federal vision. Every baptized child has the whole of salvation. But he can lose it unless he fulfills the conditions that he perseveres in faith, that he perseveres in obedience. That's where we're going. And it all leads back to Rome. That's where it's going. In fact, the rush towards Rome of Reformed and Presbyterians is so great that Rome itself has set up a committee. And I understand that the Han who wrote Rome Sweet Home is a part of the committee to help returning Protestants find their way back into the bosom of the papal church. That's what our fathers suffered and died for. That's what the reformers struggled for. That's what the Reformation was. But it's tossed to the winds. And it's all on the basis of a conditional covenant. Shepherd says so. That's where it started. Canadian Reformed Church is strangely silent. I have been watching their paper clarion with an eagle eye, waiting for their theologians to uh, comment on the federal vision. The silence in that magazine concerning it is deafening. They don't want to go that far, and yet they're compelled by the logic of the whole argument to follow it through. And then there are people who have the nerve to say these things aren't important. What's the answer to all of this? What's the answer to Han? What's the answer to Shepherd? What's the answer to the whole wretched Arminian mishmash? This, right here. This is it. This is biblical. This is confessional. This is historically reformed from the time of the Reformers on. And this is Protestant Reformed. So that's where all of this gets you. Is that what you want? Not I. I'll die before I ever go in that direction. I'd rather die. What have you got? What have you got? You want to take away everything you have, every hope, every blessing, every ounce of comfort, everything that means anything to one who has been struck by the glory of God. So that's, those are the issues. And those are the issues which we must at all costs hold dear. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.